episode of the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you back. And I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I've been a, a professor of philosophy. I've been a real estate investor. I've even written books. And enough about me. Oh, I do want to say one more thing. By the time this show comes out uh, or is uh, distributed, uh, my book, Tom Bombadil, may be just, uh, just a few weeks away from actually appearing uh, you know, on you know, the platforms and, and the websites of you know, booksellers uh, around the world. So just want you to know, I'm not sure what it's going to be in, called yet. My, I know the title I want for the book, uh, In the House of Tom Bombadil, but I have, a, I have a suspicion that the Tolkien estate will not approve of that title because that is a title of a chapter in the Fellowship of the Ring. Anyway, little uh, so cul-de-sac there. what's your next book going to be after that one, Chris? <laughs> Please, stop. <laughs> Lynn, I promise. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> That's right. It is, it is the second book in my series, my young adult series. Anyway, so enough about Look, my 12-year-old's growing. <laughs> it needs to be finished before he's reached the adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. Has he read the first book? Uh, I believe he has, All but right, if, right. if not, he will be very no. soon. But okay. yeah, I believe he has. Purloin Boy. Yep, yeah, the Purloin yeah. Boy, that's yeah. right. Anyway, Tom, tell us about yourself. Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places, teach philosophy. And this summer, we'll be writing a book, uh, yeah. a uh, battle hin- uh, battle. Handbook for the baptized, if All you right. will. All right. Um, but really, it's going to tie together uh, theological, ethical, and apologetic interests into one volume, hopefully. may become two in the long run. <laughs> um, but uh, along the nature of, of the old handbooks, when people were baptized, they were actually yes, catechized right. into um, the spiritual warfare, intellectually, spiritually, and uh, sort of ethically, that they were entering. Yeah, get those... The Incaridian. You know, That's right, similar to those, but yeah. dealing with the, with the kind of distinct idols and gods we have to face today, today versus, right, right. versus the, the earlier ones. So. Right, right. Glenn. My name is Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And at my current count, I've got five book projects I'm working on. All right, Excellent. Glenn, way to go. Excellent. The prolific Glenn, Glenn Sunshine. Yeah. yeah. I'm working on them. They're not out yet. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. And we have back Christian with us. Christian, tell us about yourself. Yeah, Christian Cuthbert. I'm a pastor here in the Vernon, Connecticut area. My true area of expertise is early American religious history, but one of my passions is Tolkien, Lewis, and all things Inklings. So. That's right. And that's a, great, that's a great segue to the subject of the day. It's my day, and uh, as folks who listen to this show know, uh, we uh, are on rotation, and uh, each of us get to introduce the subject of the day, and today is my day, and we're going to be talking about Tolkien. And, uh, you know, in part, uh, what I have to, to share today is uh, the result of my research and my work on Tom Bombadil. And uh, one of the things you, you, you learn if you take Bombadil seriously and you don't just think of him as sort of like some kind of... Um, you know, thing that Tolkien in, indulged himself, you know, indulged in just kind of on the side and didn't have anything important in mind when he, when he did so. And I think a lot of people assume that's the case with Bombadil. But if you, but if you take, you know, Bombadil seriously, he's, a, he's a, a subject who can lead you, you know, traipsing along <laughs> to, into all kinds of things. And uh, in, my, in the course of my research for the book, I uh, picked up one of the volumes in the History of Middle-earth. This is a, a series of volumes that has been published by Christopher Tolkien, drawing on the just enormous legendarium of his father, J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, when you get into Tolkien, I think mo- many of us who get into Tolkien with, through the books, I know in my case, I, I got started with The Hobbit. Yeah. Right? Get into The Hobbit. And when you get into The Hobbit, you get into the shallows of the legendarium. You know, you, you're waiting, and you, you, you think, man, this is, this is, the water's great. I'd like to go deeper. <clears throat> and uh, you have a sense that it does go deeper, but you're basically, you know, waiting. You know, the water's up to your knees or up to your waist. And uh, then you get into the Lord of the Rings. And then after you've gotten into the Lord of the Rings, you realize that now you're up to your neck. And every once in a while... There is something that happens or is said or referred to in The Lord of the Rings and you, and you find yourself, 
you know, sunk beneath the waves. <laughs> you, yeah. you just suddenly <laughs> plunged down. You've stepped into a little ravine or a little yeah. hole in the, and you know, in the, in the surf, the, the floor of the of the of the ocean, and then you have to sort of struggle to get back to the surface again. Uh, but when you get into the Sumerillion, then you're completely underwater. You're just yeah. in this vast yeah. uh, story that just goes in all directions. Mm. Hundreds of characters with odd names, which and a are, complete metaphysic. Yeah, I mean, there's a metaphysic at work, and yeah. and the names and the metaphysics are all the metaphysic is all vaguely familiar, but you don't know why. That's right. You know, you right. sort of say, I, I think I understand this, but but why do I understand it? And why is that name the is so familiar? The attraction and the repulsion, all the, all that goes with uh, right. uh, a good, you know, right. sound metaphysic. You know? Now, but when you finish the, the Sumerian, you think, whew, I'm glad that that's over with. Then you discover, no. <laughs> no, posthumously, you know, J.R. Tolkien is the most prolific author who has ever lived, or de been dead. <laughs> he's, he's still writing. He's still writing. They're still, they're still translating his right. works. Right. Well, I, I, I might hold up L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but according to the to the to the to the Scientology, so he actually may be still getting us information. Yeah. You know, I, I I've often thought about writing a fantasy story in which there is an undead cleric by the name of Elrond Hubbard. <laughs> so is, is people, he related to Elrond? <laughs> yeah. Definitely not. I grew up in Scientology, <laughs> so, so, so so listeners know. This, yeah. So this is all kind of. Uh, painfully uh, familiar yeah. to me. <laughs> in, <laughs> in a completely different <laughs> metaphysic, would you? <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Anyway, uh, so getting back to, to sanity, getting back to reality, getting back to J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I'm speaking philosophically here. We're talking about philosophical realism here. So uh, with, with Tolkien, you know, we've got... I mean, when I, when I read the things that Christopher, his son, says about these manuscripts that he's working through, I'm just astonished. I mean, the guy must never have thrown anything away. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, there just must be, there just must be like rooms yeah. of, of, of paper. I scribbled a note over there, just make sure you keep it. Make sure That's you right. keep it. Yeah, very important if you want to understand the origins of Elrod, if you, you know, this, this napkin <laughs> at the restaurant yeah, with, the, with, the, with the stain, in, you know. Anyway, so there's all this stuff going on. And, you know, I'm like, uh, how does he sort through it all? How does he work, it, work through it? Well, uh, now with the history of Middle Earth, uh, we've got, you know, sort of the, the field notes, the stuff that Tolkien was working with. And we have version B and version C and version D and, and so forth. So we, we have uh, kind of the, uh, the canon, you could say, I mean, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, the Cimmerillion, that's the canon. But now we have all of these, we, you know, we've got essentially textual criticism going on here. You know, we've got all of these, uh, you know, scribal errors. <laughs> there actually are yeah. scribal errors. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and uh, contradictions and uh, various trails. But note they're not ascribable to a different author anyway. <laughs> no, they're all the same guy. That's the same guy. So we, we have all these things going on. And uh, anyway... After the publication of The Lord of the Rings and before The Silmarillion came out, and just so folks know, The Silmarillion was published posthumously. You know, it was, it was never complete to, the, to Tolkien's satisfaction, and it was only after he was dead that his son actually got it published. So it comes out, I think, in 1978, if I remember right. And, right. and I, remember, I remember reading it after it came out because I had read The Lord of the Rings, you know, as a teenager and I was, you know, breathlessly anticipating the publication of The Silmarillion and then when I read it, I was like, what is this? It, 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 the tone, the, you know, the prose style, everything was so different. It was such, it was well, sort of high it, mythology. Yeah, but I, re I remember it. I, I came across it when I was living in Oxford, and um, I knew of it prior. I just didn't, hadn't had the time to get to it. And this was after rereading Lord of the Rings. It was a big hype at that time. Um, but I, I, I remember being completely captivated, especially, especially from the, the way in which the metaphysic and creation story just permeated with the, an aesthetic. Um, the, oh, yeah. the musical in particular. I mean, I remember reading it with some friends there, and uh, we just all were, I mean, we were changed by it. It was that aesthetically beautiful and incredible. Yep. Um, now, here's the, here's the marvelous thing about it. If you have any sort of uh, background or facility with the history of the West, 
in the you know Western intellectual tradition, you can see that that Tolkien's not making this stuff up out of thin air. He's working with things yep. that he's, he's inherited. He's incorporating them into his world and uh, breathing new life into them. Yeah. So I know that you know you wanted to talk a little bit, Glenn, about the uh, the music of the Anur. But in terms of the creation, it's kind of what we're referring to, the first chapters of Silmarillion. Yeah. This is all important background for what I want to talk about, because what I want to talk about is the 10th volume in the history of Middle-earth, and the title of the book is, is Morgoth's Ring. Now that is something to reflect about, or reflect on, and that, by the way, is Tolkien's term, Morgoth's Ring. But let's think a little bit about um, the music of the Anur and what you wanted to say about that, Glenn. Well, <clears throat> First of all, we have to I'm all set. know something about who Morgoth you, you're, you're is. You're welcome to hang if out. you're not familiar with the, the oh, mythology, um, Tolkien, I, I guess the best analogy that you can have is that there, Tolkien has God there, known as Eru or Iluvatar. Right. And under God, there are a bunch of spiritual beings that are known as either Valar, call them archangels, mm -hmm. and Maiar, or angels. I mean, it's probably the easiest way of thinking about them. And the way Tolkien's creation story goes is that all of the Valar were singing together mm -hmm. under, the, under Iluvatar, under Eru, under God. And it was beautiful, and there was wonderful harmony and all of that sort of thing. But one of them, named Melkor, who was one of the most powerful of them, started saying to himself, basically, well, why do I have to do it this way? And he went off on his own yeah. and created discord. Right. <laughs> yeah. And Eru smiled and just sort of raised his hand, and all the discord harmonized back in. It all resolved itself. Kind of like jazz. So. Kind of like jazz. <laughs> and then... Um, I mean, it would be marvelous to get Tolkien's take on that kind of... I'm, I'm not entirely sure we really want to associate the creation of jazz with Melkor. That's right. But, but the way in which it kind of found its way back into Resolve. Right. But, but then Melkor wasn't happy with that, and so he insisted on going off on his own again. And he distracted a lot of the others and pulled them with him, and it was just, just ugly distortion and all that. At which point, Eru stops it. Yeah. And looks at Melkor and says, all right, I'm going to show you what you just did. And that act of incarnating the music was the creation of Middle-earth. Right. Now there are and I think that where he goes with Morgoth's ring, that background is critical. Oh, that's very, that's very much the case. So you have this, which you could say is this grand chorus, hmm. where you have these uh, intelligences the Valar, uh, also known as the Anur, mm. who uh, are contributing to the, th to, the, to the theme. In other words, they're not, they're not just picking up a score of music that's been given to them by Iluvatar. That's right. Although they're the offspring of his thought. Mm. So it's not as though Iluvatar is surprised at anything they, that you know, is done. Nevertheless, they have real agency. Okay. They're not merely following scripts. And they're harmonizing with each other. Yes. Yeah. So there's a there's a kind of uh, participation in the in the yeah. in sort of in the music. Melkor introduces the dis disharmony. He draws many of the other Anur to him. And uh, one of the things that really comes through, though, is the way Iluvatar resolves the dissonance. The discord is by the introduction of new themes, yeah. and those and the two and the two new themes are the children of Iluvatar. Yeah. One of those themes, the first theme, is the elves or the Eldar, and the second is men or the Adain, the followers. And it's men who succeed. It's that introduction of the theme of men that succeeds in bringing resolution and final you know, consummation to the music. Now, before you run, because there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot there, and yeah. I don't want to run by it, and I don't think we can address it properly, but here we have aesthetic, metaphysic, and narrative, and, you know, and creativity, if you will, mm -hmm. imagination. I mean, running into probably 
the most comprehensive exhibition of what you can pretty much do right. with, with, with it. Um, but you're, you're, you're creating, on the one hand, this kind of, this notion of creation is singing forth. I mean, I mean, it, let's, let's say from our Christian theological tradition, we would, we would often, we often talk about the, you know, the word. But right. then we, when we start to read the Psalms, we realize that, you know, creation's response itself is, is hymnic. It's, it's, it's voicing creation's praise is, is, is melodic and, and, and uh, musical. Um, and, and the way he, he weds those two together in his imagery and that, that, that it creates, because you often, you often see with music this very thing. I mean, these, these things come together in music in ways I think no other form does, and yet literary and musical come together for him. I don't know his interest in that, but I don't know enough about him to know his interest in that. But there, there's something going on there that I think is very rarely touched by most by most people. Yeah, you know, you've got the Pythagorean element, which is the musical. Yeah. In other words, the idea that there's the a harmony, the music, the harmony, the mathematical. But but, the, but the, the, the doesn't, it doesn't seem to leave room for for the will or the creativity of, you know, of individuals as as intelligences who contribute to a greater harmony. Huh. It seems like, you know, you need to get with the program or you're dead. Yeah. That's Pythagoras. So you, uh, have, you have the yeah, you so you have sort of the composer you have the performer, but then you have the, 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 the one that is actually, you know, improving yeah. um, within that, that and, by, and by the way, I think this is one of the ways in which, uh, you know, Leaf by Niggle kind of is actually another manifestation of this. Yeah. You know, when we talk about Leaf by Niggle, this, the short story by Tolkien about the painter who, you know, can't finish the, the big tree that he wants to finish before he dies or goes on his great journey, and then he discovers... Uh, at the end of his journey, in other words, in the next life, in, in heaven or whatever, there's his tree. Yeah. And I think what's implied is that our works follow us. Our works follow us. You know, when we think about the kings who bring their, um, their treasures, uh, their glories, you know, into the presence of the king as tribute, the great mm -hmm. king, you know, there's a sense in which... Um, our works follow us. And I know that, you know, generally speaking in evangelical circles, we, we, when we think of our works following us, we're thinking about, you know, soul winning or we're thinking about giving food to the poor or things like that. But we don't think about Mozart. We're not thinking about, yeah. you know, uh, our, our creative works. Or, Where Karl Barth would have been thinking about Mozart. That's right. That's right, that's right. So, so it, it, in terms of music, it's worth noting that the longest book in the Bible is a book of songs. Yeah, that's right. The psalms right. Are, are songs. That's what the word means. Um, and along with that, if you, if you read carefully in the Old Testament, prophecy is most often done to music, it seems. Yeah, yeah there is a kind of... Um, there is a connection it, yeah. between... Yeah. Well, no, I mean, when, when um, Saul, uh, Samuel tells oh, Saul, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're going to run into a group of prophets coming down from the, the mountain and they're going to be playing the flute and the, the psaltery and the lyre. Uh, I think that's probably why they call it a prophetic band. Um, <laughs> um, when, 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 you, when you see that, I, that's, that's the first example yeah, that yeah. I know of. But over and over again, you're going to find examples of prophecy to music. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a connection between music and the spiritual that I think we really tend to underestimate. Yeah, I, I, I do think. I mean, I think it is there in Scripture, but because in Scripture it is not, it is not laid out in, in a, especially for, you know, people with redemptive history focus, it's not, it, it comes in here and here and here later down the pike. We don't associate it as bound up with word and creation. Right. Where right. I think this is where the, the move he makes. And I, I think there's something, I mean, I've always said that the, the musical element, uh, the music, the aesthetics you get with music that is able to actually combine things in ways often other other aspects of, of aesthetic don't. I mean, I think there is the visual, the iconic. I mean, all these things are, are fine. But, but you have here something that is able to, you know, I mean, I know this is popular language. I mean, dramatically bring one up into, into it. I mean, I mean, Socrates' famous line, I mean, I think it was him who said that, you know, here is music is the one thing that causes every person to kind of 
drop its guard. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and you're dealing with that. Why? Because there is something about it that, you know, there's a transcendental connection of music. Um, and, and I think the psalmists capture it because what do psalmists do? They're talking about creation. They're talking about redemption. They're talking about war. <laughs> they're talking about every aspect of our life, but they're doing it in song. Right. Yeah. Well, I have a more fundamental question. Like, Tolkien, in the introduction to Lord of the Rings, famously said that he abhors simple analogies, right? right? right. So, you know, the two towers is not Mussolini and Hitler. Right, 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 right. right. Uh, so he's not, a, um, he's not writing to reflect you know, contemporary political right. or social movements, but it seems like Tolkien is drawing on this Western intellectual tradition, drawing on the Bible. Actually, in his letters, he self-consciously says when he rewrote the Lord of the Rings, he rewrote it as a Christian story. Yeah, yeah right. Um, to what extent do you think a, uh, Tolkien would own some of these parallels between uh, you know, biblical themes of creation and such? Yeah, that's and, a great question. Yeah, well, I, I, go ahead, Jill. Go ahead. Yeah. I read a while ago in a book about Tolkien, I think it was by Kilby, that someone had written an article in which he had said that the triplex munis Christi, the, the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, are embodied in the Lord of the Rings by its three principal characters. The prophet is Gandalf, the priest is Frodo, and the king is Aragorn. And when Tolkien was asked about it, he said, I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote it, but it is what I believe, and what I believe is inevitably going to come out in what I write. Well, okay. and as well, if, I mean, if, you, if, if a writer is, is writing about what's real, what's real will be reflected in what's written. So, you know, one of the things I think that people who've never written fiction, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a learning curve to writing fiction. You know, I, when, I, when I first got into writing fiction, I wrote it kind of like John Bunyan. You know, there was, it was all kind of allegorical. Yeah. There was a very clear correspondence, this means that kind of thing. And I, it was just sort of like creating, you know, puppets, you know, who perform for you. Uh, but what, what, you, what you have when you, when you write fiction in the best mode is something different. It's, it's the characters have a lives of their own and you as a writer kind of discover who your characters are. And in the process of discovering who the characters are, you, as you write about them, say, oh, no, he would never do that, or she would never do that, or this is what she would do in this situation. You just kind of know. You have kind of an intuitive sense because the character's real to you. But what are you, what are you really in touch with there? Are you just in touch with figments of your imagination? Or are you somehow getting in touch with something real in the largest sense? Yeah. I think that's what's going on. Because I'm, I'm philosophically, I'm a realist. I believe in these things as being real things. And so if a particular character is somehow tapping into, you know, sort of what, you know, uh, John Milbank calls the suspended middle. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if the characters are tying into courage and truth and fidelity and these kind of things, you can kind of know, okay? And then, every, of course, every character is a unique mix of things. So, like, when you talk about the, the, you know, the three offices of Christ, I talk about that in my book on Bombadil. Mm. Um, you know, you've got, uh, I think... It's not something contrived or forced. What you actually have is a sort of coming to the surface of realities that are present in our world, in the story, mm-hmm. in these personages mm-hmm. in the story. So it, it's not as though, you know, uh, Tolkien had to, to work it up. He's, he's working with reality, and yeah. it's inevitable that, that reality will, will sort of raise its head. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. reality is just as real on Earth as it is in, in Middle Earth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So I, I think all that holds together. Now, what, I, what I'd like to do at this point is think a little bit about how this sort of works out. So anyone who's read The Silmarillion or maybe just read The Lord of the Rings, there's a sense in which, you know, there is a, uh, a genuine sort of, uh, I think, that, you know, sort of vindication of the created order in... Mm-hmm. You know, the stories. You've got beauty. You've got, um, you know, uh, harmonies. You've got 
just a, a world that is on display, you know, mentally or sort of through imagery, that you, you, you just say, I just want to live there. <laughs> you know, I don't care if I don't have a cell phone. <laughs> you know, I want to live there. Yeah. Uh, what he's trying to do, though, I think, is he's trying to help us not just want to be there, but help us to be where we are and help us see things that are already true about our own world. But, but there's another element here to this. And uh, Tolkien's reflections upon the influence of Melkor upon Middle-earth, upon Arda at large, Arda is sort of a larger sort of, sort of category within which Amman, which is the blessed realm, which is Valinor, and Middle-earth both exist, right? And you've got the Valar, who are the Anur, who live in Valinor or Arda. And then you have Middle-earth, which is the middle place, uh, you know, really hearkening back to kind of Norse mythology and the ways, you know, you think about Midgard and stuff like that. Anyway, so what about Melkor's dissonance, his disharmony? Just how, how does that work itself out? So you've got the song, and then Iluvatar says, and now the song is incarnate, and he shows the Anur, the sort of the, the handiwork, so to speak, of their music, and says, there it is, the world. And then they enter into it, hmm. you know. Not all of them, not all of the Anur enter into it, but many of the Anur enter into Arda. And they enter into it with different roles and different objectives and sort of different things that, you know, sort of, sort of things that they uh, love, you know, in that, in that order, things that have to do with their own natures. Um, so, uh, you know, you've got Manwi, you've got who is the brother of Melkor, so to speak, who is nearly equal to him in strength, but but not quite. Melkor is definitely kind of the Hulk Hogan or the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the of the Valor. I mean, he's just like the biggest, baddest thing around. Hmm. And uh, and you and you wonder if he if he hadn't given himself over to pride, just what would he have accomplished? You know, in in a, in a positive sense. But he doesn't. He gives himself over to to uh, to uh, his own pride. And. Uh, uh, in the course of the sort of the unfolding uh, story of Middle Earth in its earliest phases, you have this sort of battle going on of sort of primal elements. And Melkor uh, is fire and ice, essentially. He's the volcanic, he's the, he's the you know, the, the ice age, you know, he's, he's, that, he's that one. He's that, uh, you know, uh, Valar who introduces those things which bring to naught the work of the other Valar. He's continuously, you know, destroying what they create. Hmm. And, uh, and this goes on for a long time. Hmm. Eventually there's a kind of stasis and uh, enough stability is established so that, uh, you know, life can emerge and, and the world can take its form. And, uh, and, and but then... Um, creatures are introduced, and finally, uh, the children of Iluvatar enter into the world. You know, first of all, the the uh, the Eldar, the elves. <clears throat> and what you what you discover, you know, in Tolkien's reflections upon this whole process, is that um, Melkor had those those uh, children in mind all along. He wanted to create for himself. Uh, servants from them, hmm. and um, in the process, uh, he is not simply an agent who is acting upon the world. Eventually, Melkor's power is uh, disseminated hmm. into the material world, and in Morgoth's Ring, to uh, Tolkien's reflecting on how this occurs. So. If you remember in the Silmarillion, by the time the Silmarillion comes to its end, Melkor is almost a kind of pitiful figure. You know, he's afraid he won't come out of Olmo. You know, he's he's uh, you know relying upon the the service of Balrogs and dragons and so forth to protect himself. He's even afraid, you know, at different points to come out and fight. Um, what what happens? Well, according to Tolkien, what happened is that he his power is disseminated distributed uh, throughout the entirety of Arda, not just simply among you know, his servants, but mm -hmm. into the very structure of reality. So he's diminished in the very act of trying to gain total mastery. Mm -hmm. 
That's the paradox. Mm. So let me read a passage here from, from this, uh, from this, uh, these reflections or, or this, these sort of like uh, apocryphal writings of Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from uh, uh, the chapter entitled Myth Transforms, uh, Transformed in Morgoth's Ring. And this is page 400. Uh, uh, and uh, this is how it goes. Thus, outside the blessed realm, all matter was likely to have a Melkor ingredient. <laughs> and those who had bodies, nourished by the Hora of Arda, the Hora, it's, it's spelled H-R-O-A, so however you say that, he's talking about physical bodies, has, as it were, a tendency, small or great, towards Melkor. So if you had a body, you had a tendency toward Melkor. Yeah. Um, they were... Uh, they were none of them wholly free of him in their incarnate form, okay. and their bodies had an effect upon their spirits. Mm -hmm. But in this way, Morgoth lost or exchanged or transmuted the greater part of his original angelic powers of mind and spirit while gaining a terrible grip upon the physical world. Mm. So this, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the, the you know, uh, when we think about Luther's hymn, um, you know, that line that says, you know, as far as the curse is found, if, I'm, am, I, if am I getting that right? Yeah. The idea that the curse uh, that has been introduced to the created order because of, you know, s Satan's work mm. has affected not just simply the will, mm. but even the bodies. Now, this is where people that's, can kind uh, of go... That's Isaac Watts, by the way. Oh, Isaac Watts, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yep. But this is where people can kind of... I think go in a Gnostic direction. That's right. You know, yeah. this is one of the ways in which Christians have traditionally gotten sort of got caught up in Gnosticism. By the way, Tolkien uh, very explicitly, um, you know, rejects that idea, even with regard to Arda and Middle Earth. Yes, yeah. But what he's saying, though, is is that even though creation is still good, yeah, we we still have to deal with this Melkor element. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this is important uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one of those reasons being that uh, when we think about the children of Iluvatar, you know, you know, when, we, when we're introduced to the elves, not so much in The Hobbit, this is something that comes out in Lord of the Rings, the elves, uh, you know, have unending life, or at least appear to have unending life, right? Um, what we learn in Morgoth's Ring and in other places uh, in the history of Middle-earth is that's not the way the elves thought of themselves. Mm. The elves knew that they had an end, mm. that they would end when the world ended. So why would the world end? Well, because of Melkor. There is a kind of terminus point. Uh, yes, there was a, you know, we're not just thinking about finitude in the sense that everything that has a beginning has an end. Right, that's just kind of logical. What we're talking about is a kind of a spiritual thing that is more of in the nature of a curse. There is a terminus point because uh, the creation is under judgment because of this Melkor element that's been introduced to everything. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons why I thought starting with the music of the Ainur would be important. Oh yeah, because the creation itself is infected by Melkor hmm. even before it is created functionally. Yeah, hmm. that's right. Yeah, and, and the beauty, of course, of, of the music of the Anur is we know that there's a happy ending mm -hmm. because at the end, you know, Iluvatar smiles and, you know, so kind of gives a Dutch rub to Melkor. <laughs> it's pretty good, pretty good, but you're not good enough for the old man. <laughs> there's that kind of element to the, to the way the song, the song ends. Now, now, I'm sure our musical guest John here is wondering <laughs> how, how, how does that uh, work its way out of the harmony and dissonance <laughs> musically? <laughs> but that, but that's actually yeah. one of the things that that's that right. no one knows. Yeah. Not even the Valar, not even the Anur know. Yeah. So they they have a because sense. they never hear the end of the song. That's right. They never wow. hear the end. Great. And uh, great. So there. So this is the background for a very interesting conversation that occurs. Right. That's alluded to, I think, kind of in you know we have the legendarium, then we have the legend of the legendarium. <laughs> you know, if you go out on the internet you'll hear references to this, this conversation. Sure. This conversation between uh, an elf lord and a human woman. 
Hmm. And it's uh, the elf lord is Finrod, and the human woman is Andreth. Hmm. And Actually, is, before we get there, just one quick note. Sure. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Silmarillion, it's important for you to realize that Sauron was an underling to Morgoth. Hmm. If you only know the Lord of the Rings, or, or, or worse, only know the movies of the Lord <laughs> of the Rings, yeah. you got to understand, Morgoth was Sauron's boss. That's right. And that should tell you something about the level of power that we're dealing with here with him. Yeah, yeah. In fact, this is a fun thing to... I'm glad you brought that up, Glenn, because there's actually something here in Morgoth's ring. It's on page uh, 394, where uh, Tolkien addresses this very thing. He tells us what Sauron was actually like before he was fallen. And what was Sauron like before he was fallen? If you, if you were to think of an unfallen Sauron, <laughs> what, what would come to mind? Any thoughts? <laughs> a micromanaging bureaucrat. That's it. You read my, you read my post on Facebook. <laughs> so, so he's a neat freak. <laughs> he's a person who, who likes things to, to be harmonious and work okay. co in a coordinated way. So one of the things that I think is beautiful about Tolkien, but I think about Christian theology in general, is that what you see in Christian theology is every good thing can have a, a, a way to fall, yeah. fall away from grace. And in and, and, and so doing, there's a kind of uh, unique quality to the evil. In other words, there's an evil that only Glenn Sunshine can be responsible That's for. Right. <laughs> but there's another evil that only Tom That's Price right. and uh, Chris Wiley or Christian Colbert. And it has that strange tension of the good Glenn Sunshine can do what the bad Son, only what the Glen, bad What's Glen the evil Shine twin's name? And you know, what's, yeah. what's the term? Oh, yeah, it's, the, it's <laughs> Superman. What is it? The uh... Well, there's it's a German thing. Uh, what is that name? What doppelganger. Is... Doppelganger. Doppel that's, yeah. it, that's right. The doppelganger. Yeah, and they have that and, whole. And uh, I, I just think of uh, the cartoons with the angel and the demon on the shoulder. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> right, right. So uh, this, is, this is a. Uh, uh, a paragraph that's addressing the difference between Morgoth and, and Saran. <laughs> so he says here, Saran was greater effectively in the second age than Morgoth at the end of the first. Why? Because though he was far smaller by natural stature, in other words, Saran was far smaller than Morgoth or Melkor, he had not yet fallen so low. So in other words, the higher you are, the, f the lower you fall. So hmm. uh, Melkor could fall farther than sure. Saran because he was higher. Eventually, also, he also squandered his power of being in the endeavor to gain control of others. But he was not obliged to expend so much of himself. To gain domination, uh, a domination over Arda, Morgoth had let most of his being pass into the physical constituents of the earth. Hence, all things that were born on earth and lived on it, uh, by it, or lived on and by it, beasts or plants or incarnate spirits were liable to be stained by Morgoth. Morgoth, at the time of the War of the Jewels, meaning the Cimmerals, had become permanently incarnate. For this reason, he was afraid and waged the war almost entirely by means of devices or of subordinates and dominated creatures. So he's sort of in the rear guard because he literally is afraid to be harmed because he's not what he had been. Uh, one of the things that is really very evident in Tolkien's work is that uh, domination is uh, kind of at the heart or sort of the, sort of the essence of evil. Yeah. Um, this and, is, and we kind of see that today, you know. <laughs> that's right. And this is to be distinguished from dominion, which, by the way, to give away the sort of the heart of my book on Bombadil is, the, is, the, is what I'm getting at. Bombadil is genuine dominion, what it looks like. Uh, Saran, Saruman, Melkor, that's domination, which is what dominion looks like when it's fallen. So with... The word dominion today, most people think of people like, you know, Hitler or Saruman. And that's why they can't think of dominion in the sense that God grants to Adam and Eve, you know, take dominion. Because what Tolkien's doing with Bombadil is, is showing you what dominion looks like when it doesn't, doesn't have this Melkor element. Which, by the way, is, I'll give another, way, I'll give another thing away from my book. 
who can remember when Melkor entered the world? Hmm. Bombadil. He was there before before Bombadil, or before Melkor comes. So anyway, so he is an unfallen creature. Hmm. Unfallen dominion. Anyway, Hmm. you heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, getting getting back to this, so referring to the domination of others, uh, this is from page 399. Hold on, uh, before I forget, Chris, you have to write a book. Your next book has to be... Not the, the next one. Hold on, hold, on. <laughs> the, the, hold on, sorry. The one after the next. The one after the next has to be dealing with this issue in relationship to Michel Foucault. Okay. Yes. Ooh, I think you yeah. would broaden well, your, yeah. your, your, well, your... Well, actually, I'm dealing with Foucault a little bit. Okay, well, know, but, I think but you he, could get a series out of this. <laughs> I think the to, less you deal with Foucault, the better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But actually... But we have to deal well, with him, unfortunately. But there are so many things that Tolkien is doing. Like Lewis, remember, yeah. I think, who was it that said everything that Lewis wrote contained everything that Lewis thought? Uh, you know, basically the same thing is true with Tolkien. It's true, yeah. The, you know, the, you think he's just writing about some character with with yellow boots and a, bl- and a blue jacket, when in fact he's talking about, the, you know, sort of his theory of language yeah. and how it works, you know, yeah. as, as opposed to Foucault. And, and their, and, their and whole post- spiritual intellectual vision right. is in right. everything they do. Yeah. So here's, this is page 399 from, uh, from uh, Morgoth's Ring. Uh, it is thus that a temptation to minds of greater power to govern or constrain the will of other and weaker minds so as to induce or force them to reveal themselves. But to force such a revelation or to induce it by any lying or deception, even for supposedly, quote, good purposes, end of quote, including the good of the person so persuaded or dominated, that's dealing with our leftist friends, uh, is absolutely forbidden. To do so is a crime, and the good in the purposes of those who commit this crime swiftly becomes corrupted. That's Saruman. That's the story of Saruman in Middle-earth. Well, you know, and that's something we've talked about before when we were dealing with questions of enchantment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, many, many episodes ago. Right, right. One of the core rules, kind of across the board, that distinguishes white and black magic, even right. in cultures that accept the distinction, is anything that takes away another person's will is automatically black magic. Right. And that right. is almost a universal. Hmm. And, you know, one of the things you see in Lord of the Rings is all of the truly good and noble, powerful characters, Gandalf, Galadriel, Elrod, you know, Aragorn, they always honor the wishes of the lesser person. You know, Frodo, be it Frodo or Bilbo yeah. or Pippin or Merry or what have you. Uh, there's always a kind of deference yeah. to the choice of the other. Pre- the, you know, it's what, what you know, philosophers often call the premising of the will. I mean, that's what you have there. You have something that giving shape to the will to actually endow it to be the kind of free thing it's meant to be versus you know, the destructive tendency of, of, of a will that isn't premised by these same things, that right. doesn't have these limits, these ends, these orientations. And so what you have, this will that rips itself from any obligation and therefore becomes an end in of itself, becomes so destructive and, and uh, demonic. Um, and I think we see that, you know, in uh, a lot of places we wish we wouldn't see it. Yeah. We see it in megachurches. Yes. Oh, we see it yeah. in conservative political movements. All the talk of empowerment, yep. sadly. It's and nothing that... more than a disgusting display of a, a will ripped out of premise. And, and what I mean by premise is, is larger purposes. Yeah, and, and it's, and it's often deceptive. Yes. It's often a way of sort of drawing people into something that they think is going to benefit them, but in, yeah. in, in, in the end makes them it a makes tool. It makes them feel they're free. Makes if, them feel they're free. If you will only eat this fruit, you That's will. right. And they become, yeah. a, they become a, tool, a fool and a tool yeah. of the person who deceives them. Yeah. So anyway, uh, now getting back to... Uh, this conversation between the elf lord and the human, or the human woman, it's a fascinating one. So Finrod uh, and Andreth are the, are, the, are the characters. So let me read Tolkien's description of each of them. Hmm. So Finrod, son of fin, uh, fin, Arfin, son of Finwi, hmm. was the wisest of the exiled Noldor. Now the Noldor, of course, are the elves that had been to Valinor, had seen the light of the trees, had been in the presence of Manwi and the other Valar. 
but had been led by Fionor uh, on a quest for the Cimarils that had been stolen mm -hmm. by Melkor, right? <laughs> so when the trees were destroyed, when they were killed, uh, Melkor absconds, you know, with the Cimarils and goes back to, to uh, his, his kingdom in the north. And, um, and the Noldor go into exile pursuing him. And in the process of going into exile, they commit... Uh, you know, fratricide. You know, they kill their brothers. Uh, mm. They kill other elves in the process to steal ships and, and mm. so forth. So <laughs> there's, they've got blood on their hands. So they are they are now uh, prohibited from returning mm. uh, to Valinor by mm. by the Valar. Mm. But Finrod is is uh, one of these noble princes, and uh, he's, he uh, is. And it goes on to say, being more concerned. Uh, than all others with matters of thought rather than with the making or with skill of hand. Now, the Noldor were the elves who were the most gifted in craftsmanship, and that's why they made friends, made friends so readily with the dwarves and certain kinds of craftsmen among men. Uh, they, there was a kind of kindred spirit uh, there. Uh, Elule, or Lue. Uh, Ellie, yes, that's the name. He's the, the Valar, who is the sort of the, the kind smith. of the, yeah, kind of the smith, hmm. kind of the Hephaestus of the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you know, in in this mythology. Uh, but anyway, or Vulcan, and uh, they were, and he was more eager, moreover, to discover all that he could concerning mankind. So he's he's an ethnographer. He's out doing field research. <laughs> you know, hmm. he's you know he's he's a he's an anthropologist. <laughs> Literally, studying men. <laughs> and uh, so uh, uh, he's one of the first of the elder to meet uh, the, the, uh, the, the men coming into the West, and uh, Bellerand. And uh, then Andreth uh, was a woman of the house of Beor, the sister of uh, Bregor, father of Berahur, <laughs> whose son was Baron One Hand of Renown. Now, Baron One Hand, of course, is the, the, uh, the consort of Luthien, and eventually they end up managing to steal one of the Silmarils back. And uh, you know, when you when you read the Silmarillion and, you, and you hear the hear the story of of you know of uh, Baron, it's, he's an impressive fellow. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't just sort of somebody that that she had sympathy for as he was lost <laughs> in the woods. I mean, he, <laughs> he's, he's a he's a monster of a guy. He wasn't your <laughs> he wasn't your classic loner. <laughs> no, no, the leap of Baron. It was renowned among elves and men. <laughs> that kind of that kind of thing. So um, anyway, so she had learned the lore of men and their and their histories, and for this reason, the elder called her Safind or Wise Heart. So she's a wise woman among men. So she's a lore master or a lore mistress uh, among uh, her hmm. people. And so he befriends her to learn about men. You know what. You know what? What's their what's their story? Where, where you know what's in the background? What what he discovers? What, what Finrod discovers is men don't want to talk about the past. <laughs> There's a shadow that is upon them. Hmm. Now, um, so they don't want to look back. They want they're they're longing for the light, and that's the reason why they've gone you know west. Is hmm. they they've been told by the dark elves hmm. that that's where the light is coming from. So they they're going in the direction of, of Valinor. And there's a, obviously something that happens with men that is unusual from the perspective of elves. I mean, these are, these are fellow children of Iluvatar. So they expect the men to arrive. So the, so the, uh, the Eldar know that there's another race coming after them, the hmm. Adain. And they, uh, they know that they are equally children of Iluvatar. So they have no reason to sort of be condescending or proud. They're, they're hmm. from the same source. But then they discover that men die, mm -hmm. and they're what's what's with this? <laughs> and, yeah. and what's wrong with these people? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and so you know they 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 term them the sickly. You know, Bjorn the old eventually <laughs> dies, <laughs> and so the the elves are puzzled by it. The men there's a kind of embarrassment that the men seem to to have about it, mm. and 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 that it's the elves who surmise that this must be some kind of mysterious gift from Iluvatar. Hmm. Because what they all discern in mankind is a kind of uh, unrest, a kind of longing for something that they can't find in hmm. Middle Earth. And so 
they, they, they term uh, men the guests. So they think of, them, of, of men as just kind of passing through, that this is not the, their natural home. Yeah, this, this, is, this is where you're sort of, you know, theologically speaking, we talk about pilgrim, yes. pilgrim man, you know, the, the, the wayfarer in the, in the song. Yeah, right. Um, you know, um, but, the, but, but there is that, that kind of, um, that interesting way in which you're reversing classical notions of immortality, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, um, and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and it's almost a, a strange kind of um, attraction for them that here is a group of people that should probably be the ones to be immortal if mm-hmm. anyone is to be immortal. And here they do. They have this limit placed on them. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's just as much a puzzlement to the, to the yeah. men. They're, yeah. they're not sure what to make of it, too. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to make of it. That's <laughs> right. But, but the, the theory that this is a gift from Iluvatar is actually from the elves. Interesting. So they're trying to convince men that this is actually in the design, that yeah. this is something uh, that men should embrace and actually uh, celebrate. Hmm. So here's, a, here's a, a, a snippet from the conversation. This is Finrod, and he says, hmm. I would rather believe that such a fae, fae meaning spirit, uh, of its own nature would at some time of its own will have abandoned the house of its sojourn here, in other words, the body. Uh, and we see that with Aragorn. Remember at the end of the, of the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn in the appendix, I believe it is, voluntarily lays his life down and departs from his body. Actually, uh, you know, Arwen is appalled at the idea. The elf woman, you know, it finally understands, you know, what, you know, sort of doom has been laid upon men. And, mm. she, and she says at that point, I now, now I've, I used to think the men were fools, now I finally understand, <laughs> you know, what you guys have been living with. <laughs> so, uh, but, but Aragorn nobly departs in the way Finrod describes here. But let me get back to this quote. Even though the sojourn might have been longer than is now permitted, then death would, as I said, have sounded otherwise to you as a release or return, nay, as going home. But this you do not believe, it seems. And then Andreth says, nay, I do not believe this. So she knows something. And so what, what comes out over the course of the conversation is this visitation by Melkor early on in the story of men. And there's the competing voices. There's mm. the voice of Iluvatar, which speaks inwardly to, the, to men mm. and tells them what they're to do, and they reject that voice and believe Melkor. This is starting to sound like a little bit <laughs> like, you know, the Garden of Eden here, and there's a reason for that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, now, one of the things that comes out in the conversation, this is another fascinating thing, is Andreth, sort of another important part of, this, of the story between... Andreth and Finrod is Andreth is in love with Finrod's brother. Hmm. Finrod is an elfin lord, of course. Finrod, Finrod's brother loves her in return. There's, there's no, a, nothing like being an elfin lord. You know? <laughs> well, there, but there is a problem when you fall in love with a with a with a woman. You know, you know, of men, she dies. She grows yeah. old and she passes away, that's and that's uh, the the nature of the problem. So. Yeah. Uh, Finrod's brother throws his own life away in the war against Melkor because mm. he lives in despair mm. because he, he genuinely loves Andreth. Andreth, at this point in the story, is an old woman, and mm. she's talking to Finrod. And this is sort of come, comes out in her conversation with her. There's a, there's a kind of a, 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 the tincture of bitterness in everything she says, and Finrod is wise enough to know why. He says, it's because of your love for my brother. Then he reveals something to her that you don't get anywhere else in the Lord of the Rings or the Cimmerillion, uh, and that is the elves also know that they will die. Mm. That it's not merely happenstance or what have you. They know that they will pass away when the world passes away. Mm. So they're, they're, they have a terminus point, just like men do. And this is news to Andreth. Andreth has never considered this possibility, that even if men had lived as long as elves, they would also just be looking forward to this point, this inevitable departure. Yeah. So the question is, you know, what are the roles 
yeah. of elves and men in this whole in this whole story. Well, what you see is this flood of realism. I mean, you know, as a Christian, I see see it all over the place in it. But but oftentimes, I, th- I don't think it theologically. We often have it so imaginatively descriptive. And I think what you you have going on here is not romanticism in relationships, right. but real love, yep. um, real attraction. Um, but real recognition of both the tragedy, the limits, but also the beauty that is the result of those kind of drawing of parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's very attuned to that. I mean, he's very attuned to the details of, of, of things like limits, bounds, boundaries. Um, this person may be able to live here, but they see what happens when trying to love with this kind of enduring love to somebody who can only have a temporal exhibition of it. Right. I mean, you have something that is, in many ways, takes all the riches of the romantic tradition, but none of the idealism of it. Yeah, right, and, right. And, and pours it right into the thick web of, of what real life and living is yeah. when you have these parameters drawn on you. And yet, how you recognize gift, grace, beauty, and yet, yet the kind of sad face that sin and the fall have brought into everything, the limit, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. Um, the limit is a grace, but the limit is also a, something that, 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 you know, doesn't allow eternality out of the wrong thing. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. It sounds like yeah. Tolkien is using Middle Earth to wrestle with a very earthly problem. Yeah. This idea that this world is not the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. Right. And we have to, you know, we lose parents and family and friends and you know even in Middle Earth they have to come to the realization that this is not the way it was supposed to be Um, I'm not really sure what Tolkien's answer to that might be though well he actually does get to it and it's it's a surprise surprise a very Christian solution (laughs) so one one thing is worth noting though Um, when you die you pass into something called the halls of waiting right Mm. And the halls of waiting are different for men and elves. That's right. So at least until, while the world lasts, there is no reconciliation between elves and men. Right, right. And no one knows what happens after that. Yeah, but they do have hopes. And, yep. they, and, and that's one of the things that introduces uh, kind of the, the denouement, the resolution here. Um, so Finrod proposes to, to Andreth that the role of men is redemptive, hmm. that, that, that actually the, that, that elves uh, are, are, are dependent upon men hmm. in some important way to bring about the enlargement of the music. So here's what he says. This, then, I propose was the errand of men, not uh, the followers, but the heirs, the fulfillers of all, to heal the marring of Arda, already foreshadowed before their devising, and to do more as agents of the magnificence of Aru, to enlarge the music and surpass the vision of the world. And that's... And and it reminds you of, I guess, uh, Romans and other places where you talk about the whole creation growing until the children of men come into their... Right, yeah. Their rightful, eternal place. So what he's saying is that the elves are under a curse as well, they're fading, um, hmm. bodily fading away. Uh, their spirits can no longer be housed adequately. Uh, you see this at certain points even in Lord of the Rings. You know, remember the, 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 the flight to the Ford. Uh, who's the elfin lord who is... Glorfindel. Glorfindel, Glorfindel yeah. So Glorfindel uh, unveils himself there, and there's this sort of... Uh, theophany almost is kind of manifestation of his glory what's going on there is he's actually showing his his inner fire his spirit that is is only I think inadequately housed now because he's lived so long Uh, it's what you see in Glorfindel is also present in every child of Aru it's just uh, better uh, sort of uh, sort of uh, you know, kept or, or shrouded. Um, but well, uh, another place is uh, after the Mirror of Gladriel. Mm. I, I will fade and go into the West. Yes, mm. that's right, that's right. Mm. So there's this sense in which, now the, the term that the elves use is, is Estelle. That's the, their word for mm. hope. Mm. And they have a hope. Um, 
that, but uh, there's this, um, this hope that they have to, to hold on to, which uh, men thought they were the only ones that were required to hold on to. Because, again, getting back to this whole idea that, that there's a terminus point for elves as well as for men, the elves have to live in hope just as men have to live in hope. And then there's the kind of the reveal at the end of the dialogue, and this is the reveal. And this is from Andreth. They say, answered Andreth, they say that the one, meaning Iluvatar, will himself enter into Arda and heal men and all the marring from the beginning to the end. This they say also, or they feign, is a rumor that has come down through the years uncounted, even from the days of our undoing. So mm. there's a kind of proto-evangelium mm. here that has been, you know, even though Andreth has a hard time believing it because she's in despair, mm. you know, there, there's something that, that men know that the elves don't know. Yeah. Well, it sounds like an echo of Revelation 21, and now the dwelling of God is with men. Right. And they right. will be his people, and he will be their God. Right, so. right. And the healing, and, and, and I also think there's an incarnational element here. You know, he will enter himself into Arda. I think, it, I think you know, what comes to my mind anyway when, when I hear Andrus say that is Christ's incarnation coming, you know, the one coming into Arda. But anyway, uh, some really rich stuff, yeah. you know. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been wrecking my brain about this for a little bit. Tolkien wrote the essay on fairy stories, right? right? And he says in On Fairy Stories that the fairy stories fulfill like the five basic needs of, I can only remember one of them and it's the dumbest one, like being able to talk with animals, <laughs> which you know what, I've never- Look, I do that all the time. I've never really <laughs> felt the urge cats. to talk with animals, but I think there was one thing in there where he talked about like coming to terms with mortality or immortality. Do you guys the remember? Consolation is one of the things okay. that he talks about. He talks about consolation. He also talks about about Evangelium. He talks about mm. uh, the sudden turn. Eucatastrophe. You know, Eucatastrophe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so so the sudden turn. We see that, of course, in the story of Frodo. You know, beyond hope. Mm. And even at the very end, he fails. You know, he's he's laughing. He's put mm. on the ring. He's maniacal. He's a mini, you know, dark lord at that point. <laughs> and then, you know. Uh, Gollum fulfills his purpose and bites the ring off his finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the pity of Bilbo. <laughs> <laughs> Someday rule the fates of men. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So uh, all that stuff is marvelously, you know, brought together. You know, and you know, I'm sure Tolkien would say that he's subcreating, but he's <laughs> subcreating in the in sort of a, in, uh, he's mimicking the larger story of the true. You catastrophe, which is the gospel, the evangelium, yeah. right? Well, it gets back to this idea of not the way it's supposed to be. Like, are we, in fact, better off because of the fall? Yeah, the idea that, of having access to union with Christ that Adam didn't have and so many other things. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, one of the things you get, I mean, I always, I always joke with our audience, but I often talk about Tolkien as sort of common, is imaginative commentary on scripture. I mean, I really think that's what he's up to. And I think he would he would admit that's what he's yeah, up to. Yeah. Um, and incarnation was so central. I mean, he's the one who convinced Lewis on their little motorcycle ride through, right, right. through the Shire uh, <laughs> <laughs> on a on a late Sunday afternoon. <laughs> um, but but uh, but that was the kind of. I mean, I think he was aware of that. And I mean, you you can't escape it when he's when you think about his way of dealing with the issue of evil and his stories and things like that. He he. he his metaphysical and theological understanding are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even think, I mean, I, you know, I deal with the theologians who, who deal with it right on the, you know, on, on the immediate sense of trying to articulate it in the most straightforward language. But when you see someone do it with imaginative language like, like Tolkien, um, there are, I mean, I understand, he would probably admit, of course, there, there are things going on there he had no idea he was saying that, yeah, that yeah. communicate. I mean, every good writer would, right? right, right. I mean, our, our whole point is being caught up in something that transcends us, right? I, I hope when they talk about the author's meaning, they don't only mean the author's meaning. I mean, I right, do think right. there's this, this sense in which you're, you're participating in this, this transcendent vision. But I think with him, his, his way of... Understanding the depths of that theological and metaphysical vision in such a way that he could create, create, he could create characters, mm -hmm. 
agent's story, narrative, um, a whole comprehensive vision, a whole language around that. Uh, it's that's a you know we talked about Edwards in the last show. Well, it's another rare gem. I mean, yeah, language and geography. And geography. Uh, it, yeah, the scope of Tolkien's vision of the world is about as comprehensive as a human can get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and, it, and what I, what I where I would go with this is look at the alternatives, the high fantasy since Tolkien. Mm. You know, what are you going to get? Game of Thrones? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's I mean, this right. riding of the horse with the hair. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I, you know or, or, um, or that one that, uh, I'm forgetting the, the dark matter, the dark... Uh, His dark materials, Phil dark Pullman. Dark materials, yeah. Pullman, yeah. Pullman series. I mean, you know, the, these are, are the people who are <laughs> self-consciously turning away from the vision of the good that Tolkien has. Yes, there are, there are Melkors. And, Melkors yeah. are miniature. And the fact is, yeah. they create worlds that are ugly. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's the, right. Yeah, and the exhibition of the base, you know, right. I mean, that's the, that's yeah. really where they go with it, where, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I mean, is, is here mm. someone who, um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's another whole, whole other element. I mean, the way in which uh, Tolkien can take the barbarity of history, the fall, sin, and yet not um, have it reduced to that. And he's a guy that had personal experience with it. You know, he That's lost, right. yeah, lost, uh, you know, parents early in life. Um, yeah. You know, he uh, was a combatant in World War One and lost close friends there. Lost close friends. Yeah. So this is not, again, an academic exercise for him. He, he's, he's reflecting upon his real losses and his real joys. Yeah. Anyway, we've gone a little long, so we should probably wrap it up. But we really do appreciate uh, your support of the Theology Podcast. Uh, and we don't say this very often, but it is appreciated if you, you know, give us five stars on your favorite podcast platform that helps or whatever you know they have on your favorite plat- platform if it's stars or scrolls <laughs> i don't know but uh also we're, we are very grateful for those who give on a monthly basis to the show and the number of folks who do that grows uh weekly and we're astonished we get the report and we like what again someone thinks that this is worth giving money to yeah. we we use those funds to help uh you know defer the cost or defray the cost of the show we you know we have production costs and uh, and we're glad that folks help us uh, to to address those or take care of those. And just to be clear, the production costs do not include the price of beer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's still on our own that's, that's tab. Right. That's right. And, and mine is increasing weekly. <laughs> uh, a quick <laughs> another note before Glenn Glenn retorts. Um, uh, we have a lot of ideas too. So when you do fund things, um, it's not merely just going to productive costs, but we are imaginatively right, right. thinking of fresh ways to to widen what we do and and, and broaden it, um, and right. and really take the the ideas and and uh, interests that we have right. that you all have shown interest in and develop those for something uh, I think more accessible to everyone and, and maybe something everybody can take advantage of. Yeah, we had a major gift recently that's going to underwrite two major projects and uh, eventually, a uh, when COVID is finally behind us, a podcast, podcast roadshow. And maybe there'll be a little video supplement. To, yeah, that'd be great. To, that'd be great. Anyway, it was great to have you with us on the show today, uh, oh, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Great to be us. here. Yeah, I think well, Glenn, Glenn had one more line. <laughs> well, you, you, well I, I, I was debating about a comment about Antiques Roadshow, but I, I don't think we'll go there. We are the living antiques. <laughs> well, thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.